Well, we're in Acts um, 18, I think. Paul is um, completing, where we are here in 18, Paul is completing his second missionary journey. And we're about to move into it. And this is unlike the break between the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey. There's quite a lot that happens. Luke doesn't record any of that. He just immediately has Paul going into the second missionary journey. But let's just make sure you're um, uh, tracking here, because in verse uh, verse, uh, 18 and 19 and so on, just want to introduce you, because we're going to see these folks again. He's in Ephesus, and it explains in the previous paragraph why he leaves Corinth. But he's in Ephesus, and there... uh, he meets, um, or he's in Corinth, excuse me, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, and then they go to Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila are uh, a Jewish couple who had been kicked out of Rome because uh, Claudius the Caesar had instituted a persecution of Jews. Uh, and that they meet is providential. God and I think we can argue that God orchestrated this, but they will become a a very significant triad of witnesses. And they'll become very important in the third missionary journey. And secondly, Priscilla and Aquila are very, very important in the life of the man we're going to meet in verse 24, Apollos. They will disciple him. And so the other item I just want to comment on is Priscilla is given as much emphasis as Aquila. Other parts of the book of Acts, she's sometimes called Prisca. It's the same woman. And so there's this incredibly important couple that he coincidentally meets, and presumably one of the reasons they become friends and, and acquaintances is they both were involved in the same business. What was Priscilla's other name? Prisca, P-R-I-S-C-A. And it's um, that, that business is, and you see it, oh, where is that? Um, uh, tent makers. Uh, they, that word, um, that could mean leather workers. There, there's, that's a difficult word to translate. But anyway, those things are make, uh, what make them such an important couple. So Paul then, basically, as, as we're in verse 22 and 23, I, I'm not really going to read all of that. But Paul goes back to Israel. Um, we're in the spring of, of AD 52. Uh, he, he reports to his home church in Antioch, and then he sets off on the third missionary journey. In verse 23, it just says, After spending some time there, meaning Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next in the region of Galatia and Phrygia. And, I mean, if you are looking on your map, and the one we're going to be looking at in the days to come is on page 9. <clears throat> so he goes back into what Galatia, goes back into the area of the first missionary journey. And he's going to go back into Europe. He's going to go back to Greece and all that. But we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. I want to spend a, a chunk of time on this man, Apollos, that we're introduced to here in verse 24. I don't, there, I don't think there are any questions. I just did a quick summary and, and transitioned now. So Paul started his third missionary journey. Now Luke takes us back to this man, Apollos. And he wants us to understand him because he's going to play a very important role in the early church. Verse 24, now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, 
Now, you all know where Alexandria is. It's on the delta of the Nile River. You can see it. It's marked out on any one of the major maps in the packet. But this was on the Nile Delta. This was built by Alexander the Great. It was a thoroughly Greek city. I mean, its culture, its architecture, everything about it was Greek. It was the epitome of a Greek culture, of Greek culture. And so this, it's important that he's from Alexandria. So he's well-trained, well-educated in the Greco-Roman worldview, in Greco-Roman philosophy. Where, where are we at now, Jim? I'm in verse 24, 18, 24. of chapter 18. Okay. okay? Now, n- notice how he's described in the next sentence. Apollos, a, name of Alexand- a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So, let's just look at that real quickly. He was eloquent as a speaker. That's eloquent. It's really the word there is logios. Logos comes from that. He was an articulate, eloquent speaker. And competent in the scriptures, um, the, the, the Greek word there is he is thoroughly competent, well trained in the scriptures, because, verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Who had instructed him? We don't know. Because the other item that is important for you to just understand historically and culturally, Alexandria had the largest concentration of Jews outside Israel. At least 100,000 Jews lived in Alexandria. At least and because of that, that is one of the reasons why they had translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Do you know what that's called? The Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see that referred to with the Roman numeral LXX, because 70 scholars work that. I'm telling you more than you really want to know, but I, I just want you to understand Apollos comes out of this. He's a Greek, but he's also been introduced to the Lord through the Greek, or excuse me, the Jewish Greek culture there. You understand what I'm saying? So his knowledge of the, New, of the Old Testament and the scriptures would probably have been of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is quoted quite extensively in the New Testament. So he's a remarkable man. He's a little bit like Paul, except he didn't study like Paul under a rabbi. He's well-educated, he's articulate, and it tells us in the next uh, sentence, and being fervent in spirit. Now, some of your translations are going to have spirit capitalized. Some of them are not. I think it should be capitalized. I think it's referring to his um, his relationship with the Lord, full of the Holy Spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And then a curious phrase. Though he know, knew only the baptism of John. What's that referring to? John, Baptist. John the Baptist. Now listen, 
here, here we're going to take a little bit of a logical leap, but almost, almost all scholars believe that Apollos was a disciple or was taught by the disciples of John the Baptist. That's how he was introduced to the whole idea of the Messiah and the whole idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And so when it says, when it says that, it's telling us that John, excuse me, that Apollos was not aware, did not know that the Holy Spirit had come. He did not know that the new covenant had been inaugurated. He did not know, nor did he understand all that was a part of what occurs after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So that tells us two things. It tells us, number one, how widely influential John the Baptist was. And two, it tells us also how widely it was throughout the Mediterranean world. They still didn't know nor understand that the Holy Spirit had come. Well, John Apollos is about to find out <laughs> and is about to, to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit as he comes upon him and so on. So, I mean, it's just, there's a, there's a lot of things here that are frustrating to me. Frustrating to me only is, Luke, would, why didn't you take about 17 more sentences just to explain more about this? Well, I mean, when he only knew the baptism of John. Why didn't you add about three more sentences to explain that he had been a disciple of John the Baptist, who, whose disciples spread that message? He understood that Jesus had come, but what he didn't understand is that the new covenant had been inaugurated and the Spirit had come. But he doesn't tell us that. So we have to infer that. But I think that's reasonable to infer that. So in verse 26, here is this man, Apollos, articulate, well-trained, well-educated, knew the Lord, knew the scriptures, but didn't yet know the fullness of the new covenant blessings. So he's in the synagogue in Ephesus, preach, speaking boldly in the synagogue. Jesus was coming. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's probably talking about Old Testament texts and so on, and that Jesus has come, but he hasn't, he's, still, he's not completing the message. So it tells us in verse 26 in the middle of the verse, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, would you note that she's first? Priscilla and Aquila? Heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What do you think they're explaining to him? Apollos, you're right in everything you're saying, but you haven't filled it out yet. The Holy Spirit has come. The new covenant blessings have been inaugurated. The Holy Spirit is now a part of the message because he indwells all believers who put their faith in Christ. And so the Greek word there more accurately, the ESV translates the way of God more accurately to explain carefully to fill in what's lacking in someone's knowledge. So that's what they're doing. <clears throat> so Priscilla, Priscilla, and we're going to see more about this. Priscilla and Aquila are going to disciple Apollos. They're going to fill in those areas that he didn't quite understand about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, Achaia, and you can look at, Achaia is the province in which Corinth 
was located, okay? So he's in Ephesus. He wants to cross the Aegean Sea and go over to Achaia, that's that Roman province, where Corinth is located. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed for, explaining, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, i.e. the Messiah, was Jesus. Now, Paul had done that earlier in the second missionary journey. Now, Apollos is going back and reinforcing the message. But he's, his eloquence, his training, the, Luke says he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. And so that's why, now again, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, but that's, that's all right. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul will talk about Apollos. Do you remember that? He will say, this is Paul speaking, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. And you see what another thing that's going on in the Corinthian church by the time Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians, the church is split. You have people in the Corinthian church say, I'm of Paul. And another group saying, I'm of Apollos. What does that mean? Uh, I came to Christ with Paul. Another group saying, I came to Christ with Apollos. And another group saying, I came to Christ with Peter. And then a fourth super spiritual group saying, I'm for Jesus. Now, you're supposed to laugh at that. It's a little humorous. But the point is, the church, the church at Corinth was divided, and it was divided around these people who had led them to Christ and released them. And Paul just comes unglued and says, knock it off. You don't split the church like that. We're all serving the same Christ. I watered Paulus. I planted Paulus. watered, and Lord's the one who gives the increase. Don't focus on us. Focus on him. So all I'm telling you is Apollos plays a really strategic role in the church at Corinth. And we agreed last week that Corinth was high maintenance. Very much so. Very high maintenance church. Who were the brothers? Yeah, the brothers in the church there at Ephesus. That means fellow believers in the church at Ephesus. That's all it means. Yep. So what was so significant between Paul and Apollos that it would, you'd have two different, you'd have Presbyterians and Methodists, <laughs> right? What was so significant between their delivery? Wow, I don't know if we have enough information from the scriptures to really, to, for me to really be specific about that, uh, Glenn. I think um, from uh, that previous, uh, what verse was that? In verse 24, those the, the word eloquent and the, the Greek word logios that's used there, that's, that was never used to Paul. So it must mean something like this, that Apollos, in his presentation, in his preaching, in his teaching, very logical, very structured, and, and very polished in his delivery. Yeah, in, in a way. And I mean, I, but I don't, besides that, I don't know if we can say much more. I just don't know. But he would, he would have been equally like Paul. He would have been steeped in his understanding of Greek philosophy and so on, because, I mean, Alexandria was a really important city. The greatest library in the world was there at that time. So, um, but beyond that, I'm not sure I can say much more. Right. 
Now we're ready to crack into verse 1 of chapter 19. Any other question? Everybody's with me? Isn't it interesting, though, how God, and he tells us that he does this in Ephesians 4, how God sends various individuals, various leaders, various teachers, various people to meet all the various needs that are in the church, that are in, 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 a, in an area. And God, uh, God knows what he's doing, um, and it, it's, the kind of, it's the kind of thing that we always must remember that there are always a variety of people in any ministry. And in that variety in a ministry, all of the different unique needs are being met. All the unique different groups, you know, will, will touch, be touched by one person, but will not be touched by another person. It's because of their unique testimony, unique situation, whatever. Um, so, I mean, I, there's so many examples I could use, but I know even in the church where I'm involved now, we have a lot of both volunteers and, and, and part-time staff people and all. But what is neat about that is you see the uniqueness of each individual and how they're meeting very specific needs. Needs I could never meet, never even address, are being met by one of the young guys who's really, really passionate and very energetic and so on. I mean, I'm way beyond speaking to youth. I used to do that all the time. I always address youth group. But, you know, what what 14-year-old wants to hear a 71-year-old man? You know, I mean, at, maybe if I get their attention, I may say something that sort of touches them. But they want to hear an, an, a young guy who's vigorous and energetic or a young gal. And, I mean, that's just that's the complementary nature of ministry. And that's what's happening here in Corinth. Jim, isn't there a verse that cites uh, that, that the church is complete? Um, the people that are in it are complete. It completes the church. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there are two passages with that. First so Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. Both of those develop that, that the church is made up of Many, many members, each with specific, unique giftedness, and they all come together. You have a unity of the body. Oh, yeah, yeah. Knit together. In, in Ephesians, he uses the words in, in, in the construction industry. Neatly, fit together, perfectly constructed, so that the body is able to be complete in Christ. I'm paraphrasing with that. Yeah, absolutely. Verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, we just learned that, that he was crossing the Aegean Sea from Ephesus over to Achaia to Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now, if you just, I mean, if you're interested in this, if you're looking at the map on page 9, he started in Antioch, and you can just follow the line there. He goes across the area he had touched in the first missionary journey, ends up in Ephesus. So, what seems to be accurate is that Paul's goal was to get to Ephesus quickly. Now, by quickly, I don't mean in one day. I mean, this would be quite a few weeks to go the route he went. But I'm, I'm saying this is really important because, now here, here's the reason I'm saying it. Ephesus is becoming to become his base of operations for the third missionary journey. 
He's going to spend almost three years in Ephesus. It's going to become his base of art, and he's going, to, he's going to travel and go other places. But Ephesus is the key city for him. Now, if you, I mean, if again, I, let me point this out. If, if you're not interested in maps, it doesn't matter. But if you just find Ephesus, unfortunately, in a map this size, it, you, you, only, you can see it, you can see where it is, but you don't understand significance. Ephesus was a major port city and a major east-west road ended at Ephesus. So you would land at the port of Ephesus and you would take this major road which took you deep into the Roman province of Asia. And Ephesus was a, a very large city, a very important commercial city, and a very important Greco-Roman city because Ephesus was the city dedicated to the worship of Artemis, sometimes called Diana. And the temple that was dedicated to her was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It sits, well, it's in ruins now, but it sits on top of this, like Acropolis. I mean, it must have really been something to see as you're coming into the port of Ephesus and look, you see this unbelievable temple dedicated to Artemis. Uh, the, the, she's sometimes called Diana. And so Paul probably, I mean, it doesn't tell us this, but it just makes sense because Paul thought strategically, always under the influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit, but thought strategically. Ephesus is, Ephesus is the key to reaching Asia and Greece. Because it's right on the Aegean Sea, but it's, it's, it was called, Ephesus was nicknamed the window to Asia. So, I mean, Paul didn't just say, well, let's see, I think I'll stop at Ephesus. I think he had that as his strategic goal, because it tells us he goes through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And Ephesus, Ephesus of all the cities, is a little bit like Corinth, a little bit like Thessalonica, in their area, just really strategic and really important. Now, a lot happens in Ephesus, and so I, I doubt we'll get through all of it. We'll never get through chapter 19 today, but there's a great deal that happens here, and I want to take our time going through it. Continuing in the middle of verse 1, okay, he's now in Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, we're going to learn these are disciples of John the Baptist, just like Apollos was. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? A strange question, isn't it? That's a strange question to ask. But remember, the book of Acts, we, we talked about this when we began our study of Acts. The book of Acts is a book of transition. A transition from the old covenant and the old order of things to the new covenant and the new order of things. And John the Baptist is the bridge between those two. I remember I drew something on the board uh, when we started that. John the Baptist is the bridge because he's the last prophet of the old order and he's introducing the key to the new order, Jesus Christ. He's the forerunner of Christ. And so it's understandable that John and his message would be one that would spread because his disciples spread. So you have this, it's just really something. You have this group in Ephesus 
who they are disciples. They're disciples of John. They have the understanding that the Messiah has come, but they don't have the complete message that the Holy Spirit, as promised in the Old Covenant, has now come. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We don't understand nor know about Pentecost, about all that has happened since Pentecost. And so it's almost like Paul's about to say, sit down, do I have a great, complete message for you? And so they go on into then, what were you baptized? Verse 3, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all in that group. Now, in my Bible, and I've got written all over it, but in my notes here of my Bible, I have right after verse 4, 5, and 6, new covenant blessings. Exactly like Pentecost in Acts 2. Exactly like what happened in Samaria in Acts 8. Exactly like what happened in Caesarea with Cornelius. It's the same thing. Exactly the same pattern. The Holy Spirit comes, lay hands on them, they speak in tongues, etc. So what, what are you seeing? You're seeing one of the major themes of the book of Acts, spiritual quality. Everybody is experiencing the new covenant blessings in exactly the same way. So the Jerusalem church can't say, ha, 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 we, we got what you didn't. No, the people in Samaria, exactly the same. People in Caesarea, exactly the same. People in Ephesus, exactly the same. So you have Galatians 3.28 lived out. In Christ there's neither Jew, Gentiles, uh, slave, free, man, woman. Everybody's equal. Everybody receives the same new covenant blessings. So for you and me, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there are 33 things that happen to you. One of those 33 things is the Holy Spirit indwells you. That's a new covenant blessing promised in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 and 37 and other places. And I'm just, I hope you're following what I'm trying to do there. The reason this is important, because of where they were, they knew of John, they knew of John's baptism, they had accepted the message of John the Baptist, but they had not yet heard that the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost and all the new covenant blessings. Now they have, and exactly the same thing happens to them that happened to everybody in 2, 8, and 10 of Acts. Spiritual blessings equal spiritual blessings in Christ. Um. Write me a note, and I'll bring a copy of it for you next week. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, didn't. I, didn't I never give that to you? Okay, I thought maybe I did a while back, but I'd be glad to just write me a note, and I'll, I'll be happy to bring you a copy. There was definitely two different baptisms here. Absolutely. 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 
Because John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism, was a baptism of repentance. You, you are preparing yourself for the coming of the Messiah. And that didn't mean anything to Gentiles until a little bit later. The Jews didn't, because the Messiah's coming. But you're right. And then the baptism that Paul's talking about here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But wasn't, wasn't there a... The act of baptism for the Judeo culture was a common thing. For the Jewish culture? Yes. Oh, yeah, it's, it's the cleansing. The, the, yes, the ritual cleansing. Um, that, that idea of what they would call ritual cleansing, I mean, the Hebrew word is not exactly baptism, but that's not an unusual thing for them. What is, what is definitive here with this is if you're being baptized, if, uh, if you are submitting to the baptism of John the Baptist, what that means is you are now publicly identifying with the coming of the Messiah. You are ready for him. That's what John's doing. Malachi says that, that John the Baptist, the, the coming, he's going to cut the path from the side. He's going to prepare everybody for him. And that's what John was doing. When you, when you receive the baptism associated with Jesus Christ, the baptism of the Spirit and all that, you are publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. He's come, now I'm publicly identifying. And that's why, as we talked when we were in Acts 2, when you have 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem being baptized in all those those ritual cleansing pools all around the temple that easily could handle 3,000 people. You have, you have an incredible event. That must have been unbelievable to witness. 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem publicly identifying with Jesus as their Messiah. Wow, what a witness. And so for you and me, it's like my friend Jerry, that man who died of pancreatic cancer before he died, when I, I was telling Lyle's question, he he did something radical. He wanted to do it because he was reading about it in the Bible that we had given him. He wanted to be back. He wanted to publicly identify with Christ. And so all of these bikers and everything, you know, just they heard the message of what had happened to their friend. And so that's what's happening here. Now in Ephesus, you have these 12 men, because it says in, in verse end of verse one, Sunday, this isn't everybody, this isn't the whole Ephesian church. But it's some of them, 12 of them. They were confused. They hadn't heard the completed message. And so it's just a, it's, it's a tremendous, well, there's so many things I could say, but as I mentioned, it's an illustration, number one, of the transitional nature of Book of Acts. You still have people who are very much in transition. And here's an example of a group. Paul brings them up to speed of what God has done. Yeah, oh, please. I mean, it, it says Paul placed his hands on them, but is it assumed that they were baptized in water or with water? It doesn't say that specifically. But is that- you know, it doesn't specifically say that, uh, uh, Joel. So I'm not, I'm not sure if if that is actually occurring here either. That's a really good question because um, oh, if I get. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not exactly the same thing as the ordinance of baptism subsequent to your salvation. So it wouldn't have necessarily... Not, no, not necessarily. That's right. That's right. Well, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't... I mean, that's, that's a sensation that a believer... Yeah. It's, it's part of the event of you're now... 
to be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to be baptized to identify with and be now a part of the church. And so, uh, I mean, that's, I was hoping nobody would ask that, but you, you then that's okay. It really is. But because yeah, I don't want, I don't want everybody to be confused about this, but it's, what is what is really important here in, in these 12 men is they're understanding the completeness now of the new covenant being inaugurated. It has started. And they, they just did not know that Pentecost had occurred. And Pentecost, and not specifically that, that date, but Pentecost is prophesied in the Old Testament. A number that, that would be the coming of the Holy Spirit. That is, it prophesied a lot of different places, and, and Joel is one of the most famous, uh, the, in Joel chapter 2. But um, th- that's what they didn't understand. Would they have known about the prophecy of Joel 2? Probably. But they didn't know that it had been fulfilled. He is fulfilling it, and so he puts his hands on them and says, the Holy Spirit comes upon you now. Just like he did in Pentecost, just like he did in Samaria, just like they did in Caesarea. All of these different segments of the early church are experiencing now and understanding the identical uh, message of the beginning of the new covenant blessings and the coming of the Holy Spirit. I can attest that when the Holy Spirit came to me, mm. I was nowhere near a church, I was nowhere near uh, water, and uh, there's no doubt in my mind about yeah, that Yeah, part of the salvation. I thought that the word baptism meant submersion, but does not necessarily mean submersion in water. No. Um, okay, let's do a quick bunny trail here, real quick. <clears throat> Which doesn't always fit with our bunny trails. The word baptism into English comes from the Greek word baptizo, okay? That's the Greek. Now, baptizo as a Greek word means to... I, what am I writing here? That's a D. Means to identify with... And it was used in the, um, well, let me put it this way. It was used in the textile industry of the ancient world, where you would take a piece of cloth, you would take a piece of cloth, let's just pretend this, this is a white piece of cloth, piece of paper. You would take a piece of, 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 of linen, uh, and, and you would have a vat of dye. <coughs> uh, often it was purple, that was very popular color. But you would take that piece of white uh, linen and you would dip it into the vat of dye. If you're speaking Greek, you would say, I have baptizoed that piece of linen. And so you pull that linen out, and now what is it? It's identified with that dye. It's purple. So the baptizo was using the textile industry of what you did to a piece of linen. Because, I mean... When you know it's all, it needs to be dyed. It needs to be colored, whether it's blue or red or purple or whatever it is. The only way to do that, and that's what we do that same thing today. You dye cloth, you know, when you're making clothing and all that kind of stuff. So it's really, and this is the term. This is the term that Jesus chooses to to use. This is the term that John the Baptist chose to use. 
And this is a term that then becomes identified with, first of all, you are identifying public with Jesus Christ, and you're identifying now publicly with the church, baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, while to answer your question, the logic of that is immersion. But in the traditions that have developed in 2,000 years, there are three traditions. One is sprinkling. One is pouring. And the other is dunking or immersion. Um, if you come out of a Baptist tradition, which some of you do, for Baptists, it is anathema to talk of sprinkling. <laughs> I mean, they just think it's, it's heresy to teach that. But, you know, I, I don't get real exercised or concerned about the method or the mode. I just want to make sure that someone that has trusted Christ has publicly identified with him in the ritual of baptism, the ordinance of baptism. So, I mean, it, as I said, I hope I'm answering your question, the logic of this seems to be immersion. And because John the Baptist was in the Jordan River, it's just hard to believe. I mean, just try to imagine it. It's hard to believe that he is taking him into Jordan River and just sprinkling him, you know, grabbing a little thing of water. I mean, it's just it's hard to imagine that. Because when the Jewish person thought of their ritual cleansing in the ceremonial pools, that was immersion. So, but, you know, other... Traditions have developed, and each one has a unique tradition to it. Uh, one way to maybe look at it is a person unknown about Christ is a piece of white linen, and once you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, you are changed to a, a cloth of a different color. Yeah, I mean, you, you take you take on a whole new identity. I mean, that's why I've used that in a lot of different ways, but I think that is a picture of that. You are now publicly identifying, and now you come out of the waters of baptism, you have a new identity. You're now identified with Christ, and so on. I mean, it's a powerful ordinance. It really is, and I think, um, not, not don't, I don't have any specific in mind, really, but I think often we take baptism too lightly. I think it should re it'd be like the, the, your friend or your cousin, uh, what do you mention, a celebration. It, it really should be. And like when my friend uh, Jerry was mentioning earlier, a celebration of joy. This, this, he's publicly identifying with Christ. What a fantastic thing to do. We do that in our church when somebody becomes baptized. We all. Excellent. Excellent. That's, oh, I love to see that. That's excellent. All right. Let's, uh, what time is it? Oh, we're still in good shape. Oh, but you want me to go another hour, right? So we're in good shape. <laughs> Verse 8, and he entered the synagogue. So here's his, his typical, typical modus operandi. He entered the synagogue, and for three months, that's, that's unusual. He's really making a commitment to Ephesus. Three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, there are those words again. We've seen those a number of times in, in the book of Acts. Reasoning and persuading. And those two Greek words have the sense of like a debate, a discussion. I mean, he isn't, he isn't just standing up and just preaching or teaching, but I mean, there's a, I mean, the, the language there is a kind of a back and forth. So 
So they're asking him questions, responding. It's, it's, so, I mean, that's, I just want you to understand that he, when Luke uses those two words, it's more than just him speaking. He is doing that and preaching or whatever. But would you notice something else about the kingdom of God? We have not seen that phrase very much in the book of Acts. We saw it in chapter 1. When Jesus is about to go back to the Father, about to ascend, you remember what the disciples asked him? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, that was a very good question. It made sense because everything the Bible had said about the Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection is over. So now the kingdom? Okay. And Jesus said, those times, and that's not for you to know. Your assignment is start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So I want to explore this for just a little bit. He's in Ephesus. These are diaspora Jews. These are Jews, you know what I mean by diaspora Jews? You know, they spread out. These are not, this is in Jerusalem. And he's reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So just think about that for a minute. He's going beyond just the message of Jesus being the Messiah, which is a message he's proclaimed. We've seen that a number of times. The Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. So he's, he's going beyond that. So let's think about that for just a little bit. If he is teaching, reasoning, persuading, teaching them about the kingdom of God, what else is he teaching them about? I would think it would be eternal life in heaven. Okay. The second coming. The second coming. Oh, also the new and all of the blessings of the new covenant, which are very much tied to the kingdom. So, as several now of you have said, he's going beyond just the teaching that Jesus is the Messiah, which is central to teaching Jude. They must understand that the Messiah is coming to Jesus. It's, it's almost like to begin to teach about the kingdom of God is now, so what if he is the Messiah? So what? And so it's just, he's talking about his second coming, when he will return as king of kings and lord of lords and rule and reign. So, I mean, uh, whichever, I forget which one of you said, He's, he's talking to them about end-time things, about eschatology, about the second coming, about all that's wrapped around that. So he's going beyond just the truth, Jesus is Messiah. Okay, here's my question. Does the Old Testament talk much about the Messiah as being king of kings and lord of lords and ruling? Good night, yes. You do know there is more in the Old Testament about the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ than there is about heaven. There's more details about his earthly kingdom than there is about heaven, especially in the book of Isaiah. And if you go to Isaiah 9, what's in Handel's Messiah, you know, you know wonderful counselor, the mighty God, you, ever, you know, that's right out of Isaiah chapter 9. It's all talking about him ruling. You see, his first advent, he accomplished redemption. He was the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. Now what? He's been reigning. He's back to the Father. The Holy Spirit's come. The new covenant's begun. Now what? That's kingdom of God stuff. I mean, this is, this is really, I, oh, 
I would love to hear Paul teach on that. I would love to him articulate what he's doing. He's going back and forth. And I can just imagine, so you're saying that Isaiah 9, one of our favorite passages, is referring to him and it's got, yes. You mean that Isaiah 35 is a description of what his kingdom is going? Yes. Isaiah 61 is a description? Yes. Psalm 2 is a psalm that's focusing, yeah, look at that. Let's take that apart and show how that's Jesus. Psalm 110, first four verses, yeah, the Father says to the Son, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand, I put the earth under your foot, so then you're going to ruin rain. Yeah, it's about the coming kingdom. And when Jesus said, he taught us, our Father of art and come, our Father of art in heaven, hello be thy name, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's a kingdom prayer. They're not having a fight up in heaven as to who Jesus is. Is he really the son of God? Is he really? No, no. He's worshiping him and waiting for the moment when the father says, son, go get the church and kick it off. And so, I mean, this would have been an exciting thing. He's going beyond just the teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. He's, He's going way beyond that. So what's the response? Verse 9. What's the first word of verse 9? But when some became stubborn, you could translate that hardened, and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. Now, we've come across that before, but that little phrase, the way, was a very early reference to the church. Almost everybody thinks that came from John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it was just one of the names for the early church. Before He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Who, who, who are the disciples? The disciples in, in the Ephesian synagogue. And left Ephesus. No. Reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. That's a lecture hall owned by a, an Ephesian named Tyrannus. It is a part of the Ephesian library. If I could get on a plane with you all now and take you to Ephesus, the the city is in ruins now, I'd show you the massive theater that we're going to see. It seated 12,000 people. And I would show you where the Hall of Tyrannus was. It was in the library, a massive structure still standing. So what is Paul doing? Now he's doing something which was very typical in the ancient world. He, I don't know if he rents it or Tyrannus is a Christian who's allowing him to use it, but he's in a lecture hall. This was a very common thing in the ancient Eastern world. Itinerant philosophers, itinerant teachers, they'd go from town to town to town. They'd rent a hall, and if you want to hear that guy speak on you know, whatever it is he's speaking on, you would pay a little fee and go into the hall. That's what Paul's doing here. So he's shifting from the synagogue and because of the hardness of some of their hearts, their stubborn hardening to unbelief, critical of the way, he says, okay, 
going to stop teaching the synagogue, but I'm not leaving town. I'm going to the library and the hall of Tyrannus in the library. And how long was he teaching there? Next verse. For two years. The Apostle Paul is making a major commitment to a very strategic city to immerse this city in the truth of who Jesus is. Jew and Gentile. Because he's now not in the synagogue anymore. He's now in the Hall of Tyrannus. He's in the library. This is a... This is... Oh, wouldn't it be great to get go see all that now? That'd be fun. But uh, anyway, two years. Look at, look at the rest of verse 10. You see something very important. You understand his strategy. So that it's a result clause. This is the intended result. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Because remember, Ephesus is a key cosmopolitan city, the gateway to Asia. Major road goes east-west. So he's there two years. Who's coming to hear him teach? People that are coming from all different parts, eastern Mediterranean, travelers, merchants, and Paul is reaching them all. And I mean, it's just really, it's really cool. I just, oh, I would, Luke, tell us in detail. What were some of the things he was saying? Who's coming? Who are some of their names? Where are they from? But in one sentence, he tells us, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's a succinct, pithy summary of this was Paul's strategy to reach Asia. Now, remember, Asia isn't China. It's Asia was a Roman province of what's today basically Turkey, country of Turkey. But you see, there's a strategic element there in Paul's thinking. This is the most important thing I can do. I'm not leaving because the Jewish leaders are opposing me. I'm just going to go to another place. And two years, two years he's doing this. His earliest commitment was 18 months in Corinth. Now he's been in Ephesus over two years. And that's all. Aren't you frustrated by that? You know, Paul, I am. Paul, or Luke tells us all these other details about all these things he does. Now he's here two years and he sums it up in one sentence. That's not fair. I just think. Well, there was only one message. Yeah, I know. But I just. <laughs> It just, it's just, oh, man, this is really huge what he's doing. But anyway, but, I mean, Fred, you're right. It's the same message. The same, but it's just, I just, I love that because I see two things. In this strategy of Paul, but, and obviously I think under the influence of spirit, but this deep-seated commitment. Okay, if the Jews aren't going to listen, I'm going to go to everybody else. And he's impacting everybody, Jews and Gentiles, on the whole province of Asia. And that's because of the location of Ephesus. And, uh, you, have the, uh, you have a difference here. Uh, these people are learned, as it mentions here. They're, they've studied and they've learned. Yeah, yeah, at least many and of them. Yeah. You have the other word of ignorance. So learned, but ignorant. And so what he's doing, because they are learned, it seems like it's a, it's a great way to teach because he's teaching to their base of knowledge and explaining what that means. Yes. Yeah. They're smart enough to, yeah. that, and they yeah. want to think yeah. that they're thinking 
competing. Well, and you have, this is what is, is, again, part of my frustration with Luke just telling us all this in one sentence and that's it. The Holy Spirit inspired this, so that's all he wanted us to know. But he's talking to Jew and Greek, you know, Jew and Gentile, all, you're, you're going to address them in different ways to, to an extent. But these are Jews of the diaspora too, which means they're pretty much steeped in the Greco-Roman way of thinking. So he could speak to both of them with the same message. But it's just, it's really fascinating to me. I, I really, it's just a fascinating block of material in two verses, and that's all. Two years in a rented hall in the library of Ephesus and teaching. And Jews and Gentiles so that the whole province hears about the Lord. Wow. He doesn't seem to be getting the pushback that he was. You're right. Why is that? I, I, I don't know. I can't answer that. We can read between the lines. Maybe um, maybe the support he had from everybody else, including some of the powerful people of Ephesus, neutralized the concern of the Jews. I just don't know. You're right. He, he gets some uh, because it just says they're speaking evil of the way, but they're not to stone him. They're not taking before the magistrates of Ephesus. So he has a, he has a degree of, he must have a degree of support. From some of the, the folks that meant something in Ephesus. Now the next paragraph is um, ugh, I better save this for next week. The next paragraph is one of the best examples in the book of Acts of genuine spiritual warfare. And so when if you have time, read verse eleven through verse twenty. You're introduced to the seven sons of Sceva. It's a great name, but sons of Sceva. And, and you have demonic power, you have spiritual power, and you have genuine spiritual warfare. And it just, there's some humor in this, and there's some profound teaching about the, 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 the resistance and the, the, the power of Satan as he's opposing the spread of the gospel in this very strategic city. So it's a, it's a great paragraph. So we'll get into that next week. Thank you. It was a great, great question. Great interaction. This is... Now, man, I'm just going to tell you, God has blessed me. When I retired, I told the board two years before I was 65, I said, I'm retiring on, on uh, when I'm uh, 65, June uh, 30th of 2012 is my last day because I'm going to focus the rest of my life on what I'm really passionate about, which is teaching the Bible and discipling and mentoring men. And you're just part of how God's answered that prayer. I have four Bible studies. I'm teaching at my church all over the place. And I just, God is just blessing me, allowing me to do what I really, really love to do. Amen. So as long as I, as long as you want me to do it, you show up, I'll be here. So thank you. Thank you for blessing me in that way. Lord, thank you. Yeah, in the library. Yeah, right. There you go. We're renting the Hall of Tyrannus and First National Bank. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Joel, for arranging that. Lord, thank you for this time around the Word of God today. Thank you for the, the richness of fellowship with these guys. Thank you for their willingness to come on Wednesdays and for um, their intensity in wanting to study and learn the Word of God. Thank you for just what we studied today about the uh, well, about Apollos and about Paul, and even as we are starting here in 
this chapter about his strategic thinking about Ephesus and why he would commit so much time to one city, why he would even go so far as going into the library in this Hall of Tyrannus in the library there at Ephesus. It's all a part of you giving him strategic thinking and visioning of how he can reach and maximize the contact with the maximum number of people in a very strategic city so that an entire Roman province is impacted by what he does. Lord, thank you. Give us that kind of strategic thinking and energy and focus to be good representatives of you. We, we love you. We love you for all that you've done for us. And we therefore want to represent Jesus Christ well. Help us to do that. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.